Hey y'all. So when it comes to bodies, weight loss is not really something that I'm pursuing right now. But as you know, one of Vanessa's family members has been taking a GLP-1 medication and it's worked really well for him. So if that is part of your journey, you should check out the Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Roe's partner handles all the insurance paperwork to help get the medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. Go to ro.co slash infamous. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash infamous. Campsite Media. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Infamous, and I'm Vanessa Gregoriadis. And I'm Natalie Robomet. Now, when you hear Mean Girls, you probably think of the most campy movie of the past 15 years. It's that fish-out-of-water story about one girl's attempts to fit in with the popular girls who rule the school. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. Is butter a carb? One thing you might not think of when you think Mean Girls, though, is a deeply researched parenting book. But Tina Fey, in part, based her screenplay on a buzzy 2002 sociology tome called Queen Bees and Wannabes. This book was a sensation. It was like the kind of book your parents read to understand why girls were so mean, got reviewed in Time and Newsweek. It told parents exactly what a queen bee was and how mean she could be. Evil takes a human form in Regina George. I'll be fooled, because she may seem like your typical selfish, backstabbing, slut-faced hoe bag, but in reality, she is so much more than that. She's the queen bee, the star. Those other two are just her little workers. Regina George. How do I even begin to explain Regina George? Regina George is flawless. She has two Fendi purses and a silver Lexus. I hear her hair is insured for $10,000. I hear she does car commercials in Japan. Her favorite movie is Varsity Blues. One time she met John Stamos on a plane. And he told her she was pretty. One time she punched me in the face. It was awesome. That was from the movie. And this month, it's being re-released as a musical with updated characters and, you know, songs. But in real life, Queen Bees and Wannabes author Rosalind Weissman was inspired, at least in part, to create Regina George's character by her much younger sister, Zoe. I was very charismatic. I knew how to read people. I understood what mattered kind of in the in the world. I was very good at understanding people's weaknesses very early on, how to sort of blackmail them in general. That's Zoe Nightingale, a.k.a. queen of high school. Now, Zoe, who's a comedian and hosts the podcast You're Welcome, happens to be my friend. So this episode, we're going to be talking to Rosalind Weissman and to Zoe together. And then just to Zoe, to hear what it was like to grow up as a mean girl, to have your life turned into a movie, and what it was like to be the author, I'm talking about Rosalind, who started this whole enormous pop culture moment. 
we're going to talk about the topic of the day, which is girlhood. Rosalind has been covering this for decades and decades. Zoe has um, been a girl, now a woman. We're all women here. Uh, and it's uh, still girl. Okay, well, yeah, you could call yourself whatever you want in today's society. But it's an interesting time to be talking about this because, you know, this has obviously been the year of like the mainstreamed girl power, right? The Taylor Swift, Barbie, girl dinner, whatever you want to call it. So, Rosalind, what do you think when you look around yourself today? Well, I think that girls have really complicated lives. I think they're super resilient. I think they're complicated people. And, you know, I always worry about them because I, you know, I want the best for them and so many things get in the way of them coming into their full potential. So I worry. You mean like body image or just a feeling at school that they should not do as well as the boys? Like what would you take off? Actually, no, actually, I mean, there's a lot of things, but I think that there's a a lot to say about girls feeling like they have to be perfect at everything, including, Mm -hmm. you know, there's this double-edged sword about being of self-improvement that Mm -hmm. you always should be doing better, but then you never actually acknowledge that you have accomplished something. And if you're constantly thinking that you're not good enough, then you're not going to advocate for yourself effectively as a woman. Mm -hmm. Cause women, you know, I just, I just think that a lot of the issues that girls dealt with more like obviously and acutely affect them as they get older in more subtle, sometimes more subtle ways. Although I certainly have women write to me who say, you know, my workplace is like being girls and that's just yes. so incredibly sad for everybody. Mm-hmm. And yet girls actually, you know, there's just, and girls are incredibly resilient at the same time. And so what about your sister? And how did this whole thing, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I asked, you know, Zoe, like, did she start studying girls because of you? And that's, <laughs> I mean, I'd be interested in your, both of your answers to that. Yeah. Well, you know, this is the first time that um, Zoe and I, I think, have talked about this publicly. Is is this right? Is this right? Am I right about that? Except for the New York Times cover magazine when you are 15. Wait, is that why she doesn't want to talk about it? Because it's so funny to me that somebody who is not (laughs) vulnerable, like whose entire brand is like zero vulnerability, is so nervous about this thing that's so distant we're talking about in such an abstract way for some reason this stuff feels very private it feels very private okay that is sometimes the case with the people who are the most like outre when you meet a guy who has a million tattoos on his face for example you're like (laughs) oh no you're the most boring person alive like he just wants to talk about like drywall and like electricity (laughs) like a lot of the time don't you find the people who are the most like like aggressively outre are sort of the most no, guarded. No, I'm not. Gu- I'm, I'm only guarded about. I'm very guarded about my sister and her career and talking about anything that has to do with her life's work. And I have. Right. I don't. I'm like it's one thing for me to take responsibility for the garbage uh, vomit <laughs> mouth that I have. But I right. okay. I, okay. As I as I've gotten older, I really, really have wanted to take more stock in the way that my words affect my family. So I'm just trying totally. to do better. Well, I just love that. I mean, we really we uh, we've never talked about things publicly. We both have such a public life, and I think that's really interesting. So, Rosalind, explain to me what you do, and also sure. then like how you ended up writing this book, Queen Bees yeah. and Wannabes, sure. and Zoe's connected to it. <laughs> Sure. Okay. So 
I grew up in DC, as Zoe did. And um, I started off when I was 21 teaching self defense mm -hmm. to, to girls with the person who was my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, has been my husband forever. Wow. And it, okay. And then I started doing what is now called social emotional learning in schools and organizations all over Washington, DC. And okay. I was doing it in the private schools, but I was also doing it in like St. Anne's maternity home for like 14 year olds who were pregnant or just had children. Mm -hmm. I was developing these things that usually kids hate about how they should be like a good person, right? Or like, right. Don't, okay. don't, don't, be mean, don't be mean to people. And then mm -hmm. several years later, I wanted to write a book that would explain the world of girls to people because it seemed very obvious to me. And it seemed very obvious to me about what the, the consequences were. And people were just either mystified by it, didn't take it seriously, you know, oh, girls, they're just clicky and catty or whatever. How did you mm -hmm. start thinking about the mean girls idea? Yeah, it was just so obvious. So it's just so <laughs> it was so obvious to me that there was yeah. this like taxonomy. I'm a political theorist by training, and I don't see very much difference at all between politics and, you know, you know, the United Nations, for example, and the politics that are, go on there and the politics of mm -hmm. middle school. Like, it's just, it's just the same. I just always knew that there was a language yeah. to talk about what roles people played. And those roles mm -hmm. weren't necessarily like, oh, you're a queen bee, so you're going to be a queen bee for, in everything that you do. You can mm -hmm. move roles, but that there were positions that people took in groups. And I wrote a whole language and sort of universe around those roles. And then from there, I knew what the title of the book was going to be. I always knew that mm -hmm. the title was going to be Queen Bees and Wannabes. I, I was a queen bee. I'm, just, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I'm just going to say it out loud. Mm -hmm. This girl got invited to more proms than I knew that <laughs> proms existed. But she was so mean. I was forceful. I had I had charisma and spirit. Well, the other part Spirit. was you. Here's another part, and this is the thing that's like evergreen from no matter what. Is that Zoe fell in love? Like she definitely had you know crushes on people, but in general, she really didn't care about all of these guys that were asking her to these prom, these dances, or right? These so if she doesn't care, I mean, this is the true of anybody. It's if you don't really care, then people are like, oh my god, you're so amazing. She was just like she was edgy and pretty and scary. <laughs> and charismatic. Right. It was like it was right. it was a perfect combination. Of course, people fell in love with her. Yeah. Of course they did. Or they hated her, right? It was one of those two things. Yeah. Which of course yeah. I say with all the love in the world. So is this like something where there are queen bees in the Middle Ages? Like is this socio-political yeah. structure of girls like yes. the same every generation? Or like what do you yes? Yeah. They're gonna be people who are in positions of power, just having a sense of belonging that they belong where they're supposed to be. And there's a group of yeah. people underneath that are constantly striving to belong in the same way. And those people are actually the most aggressive to other people because they're fighting to reinforce their power position constantly. And then there's people who are constantly trying to figure out how to please those mm -hmm. people because they don't have as much whatever political clout, social intelligence, like all different kinds of things. They try to please <laughs> the people that have more power. And then there's people who yeah. don't care at all. So like, what is the hierarchy? There's the queen bee, there's the wannabe. The banker is somebody who holds information and then right. dispenses it at strategic times. And mm -hmm. that person has to have a high degree of social intelligence and is not driven by impulse. They actually can wait and decide when they want to do the things that they do. So they're really tricky to work with. 
then there's the person that I mean, I, I remember talking to Zoe about the champion, this person that I thought could just move between groups and was really actually liked by people because they were nice. And Zoe at 14, I don't think Zoe would think this now, but Zoe at 14 was like, yeah, that doesn't, that person doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not a thing. <laughs> oh, I, I was trying to make her think, like, Zoe, I was giving you a break, like, that you would think that now, but uh, not think that now. But yeah, at 14, she's like, well, for us, that's ridiculous. That person does not exist. No, they oh exist, but they're not, they're not, they're not liked, but they exist. Oh, I see, I disagree with you. I think there are people who like that person. This is exactly the kind of conversation we would have. <laughs> <as a teenager. laughs> and who else? Who else are they? Who else is in um, that little taxonomy? Yeah, the punching bag, which I think is actually relevant for girls and boys. It's the person that everybody else can, everyone in the group can say and do whatever they want, basically, to that one person. Um, but nobody else can outside of the group because they're, you know, you're our, our person, right? So we get to do right, it, but right, nobody right. else gets to do it. And then there was the fly, which the boys actually came up with when I was writing the boys. The fly was somebody who looks for social opportunities. They're hovering and they look for opportunities Mm -hmm. to land and be useful to the group. So like when, you know, a kid whose parents have money and they can say like, oh, I'm going to get concert tickets for X. Like, do you want to come? And everybody's suddenly nice to them. That would be like the fly. I see. So what was your feeling when you saw the movie, when you saw the Mean Girls movie? The first time I saw it, like in its entirety it was like all of my work come to life and it felt like I was looking at a picture of myself that I was sort of embarrassed for everybody to see it was a really bizarre experience and when Regina George came on screen for the first time and she's and like Rachel McAdams so nailed the like the looks, the body language, the small, tiny, little things that girls do. And I just was like, oh my God, she is so horribly good. This is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Like yeah. PTSD from the girls that, you know, because I, <laughs> girls can be horrible to me. I mean, I, I mean, I've had really? more eighth grade girls. Oh, I've had so many eighth grade girls look me up and down. So many. You'd think like I get some street cred for being like this person, right. but they just look at me like, oh, whatever. And they just look at me. <laughs> I have some girls who do that. I'm like, hi, I'm so grown. I'm so, like so old. And you still look at me like this. And then, you know, there's all these scenes in the movie and the musical and the movie about where the, you know, the teacher who's like this rough approximation of me and the work I was doing. And, you know, that whole thing where people raise their hand and say, has somebody been mean mm-hmm. to you? And, you know, look around and then have yeah. you been mean to other people? That whole thing is me. And so when I first saw it, it was sort of terrifying. And then I remember the trust fall scene where I got super mad because I hadn't seen it before and I didn't, I read it in the script. I'm like, I don't do trust falls. I felt like I should get up and scream. Like, I don't do trust falls. Nobody who knows what they're doing with young people would ever do a trust fall. So, so and the scene yeah. you're talking about is like Tina Fey talks to all the girls and basically says, you're all talking behind each other's backs. Yeah. Like yes. every little clique of yes. people, like the lacrosse girls and the popular Ooh. girls and the this girls and yeah. the that girls. Uh, it's been some girl on girl crime here. Okay, so what we could do today is a couple exercises to help you express your anger in a healthy way. Uh, let's start over here. Miss Norbury had us confront each other directly about the things that were bothering us. And it seemed like every click had its own problems. You've been acting really stuck up ever since you switched to short fielder, and Don agrees with me. Don? Don't drag me into this. I'm pitching tomorrow. Can I just say that we don't have a click problem at this school? 
And some of us shouldn't have to take this workshop because some of us are just victims in this situation? That's probably true. How many of you have ever felt personally victimized by Regina George? I guess the, guess the yeah. most important thing about it is that not all girl groups have this kind of nefarious warfare in them. They don't. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we tend to think that like only the high social status groups have that kind of stuff. And it's not so binary, obviously, like there are and conflict is inevitable and deep friendships will have conflict. I mean, Zoe and I get into fights all mm -hmm. the time. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question. Who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi points system, they never imagined somebody might actually try to snag it. But a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com infamous. That's rocketmoney.com infamous. rocketmoney.com infamous. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So Rosalind Weissman wrote a book laying out the social hierarchy among girls. But while she was writing it, she had a lot of input from her very own queen bee, her younger sister, Zoe. After the book came out, a New York Times Magazine article profiled Zoe and some other girls that Rosalind worked with which is apparently what caught the attention of Tina Fey. And for Zoe, this whole thing was a really big deal. Zoe, my friend, is here to talk about the incredible oh, phenomenon gosh. of Mean Girls. I have to tell you, uh. <laughs> I 
was never the main mean girl. I really aspired to be the secondary mean girl, just the person that went along on the coattails. And once in a while, I would get to be that person. But much more often, I was like the bullied person, <laughs> to be totally honest. I could see you being a loser for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks. Let's go backwards. So you were born, you were putting in a little silken bassinet with a little silky bonnet. I had gorgeous. With cor- a nanny. I had so many nannies, they could barely handle me. I was born into a family where my sister was 16, my brother was 11, my mother was, my my mom was 40, and in 1984, women did not have children at this age. So I was born into a very, very weird- And you're living in Georgetown. Yes, in in D.C., um, in Cleveland Park in Washington, D.C., very close to the vice president's house. And what are your parents doing for living? My father- wanted to be a jazz pianist, but he came from a long line of Holocaust time Jews that demanded that he make a lot of money. And he went into the family business that, you know, it's one of those old stories. My grandfather had like a a quarter. He turned it into a gold nugget. He then bought a vegetable cart. The vegetable cart became a grocery store. Grocery store became a, you know, a a national chain. He then bought an oil refinery called Wiseman Oil. And then they did petroleum products of many kinds, and they, they dealt with waste petroleum, and they made Texas tea out of garbage, basically. So you've got this older sister who who's, like, sort of interested in you or not at all interested in you? When I was born, my sister fell in love with me, and she – it was a tumultuous time in my family. I think the thing that really changed is that we went from having um, a very, very extremely comfortable upper-middle-class life to – kind of having nothing. We had enough to pretend. And my mom would sell off like the Steinway. She'd sell off her wedding ring. And this is just all sounds so entitled and gross. But my father lost all our money, quite frankly. And my sister became very much a surrogate mother to me. I was like a terror from very, I mean, there are stories of me having to be like, like double seat belted in cars and just left on the side of the road during family car trips because I was so insufferable. People <laughs> giving me flowers and me throwing them on the floor and stomping on them. Uh, you know, just like, oh just, okay. just generally right. a great kid. Uh, yeah, I mean, whatever. I was acting out a lot. I was looking for attention. I was not getting it. And um, I did more and more things to get it. I dyed my hair. I pierced my belly button. I went to New York. I didn't tell anyone. I stole my mom's credit cards. I like went out with boys and tell anybody, but nobody even cared. At the time I felt like we were poor. I had to lie to everybody about what was going on in our life. I And I put on a lot of airs to like present myself as this more than I had kind of person. And that came with a lot of bravado and a lot of angst, and a lot of like hurt them before they hurt you kind of things. I basically went around demanding spotlight wherever I went for the rest of my life. <laughs> Oops. And so you become a super, super popular girl, a queen bee when? Always. 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 I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I was very charismatic. I knew how to read people. I understood what mattered kind of in the, in the world because I saw both sides of, of the haves, the haves, nots of power. We grew up in DC and there was a lot of power stuff going on. People was very good at understanding people's weaknesses very early on, how to sort of blackmail them in general. I just really was very calculating and aware of social dynamics and power and and people. And I just bulldozed the world. I don't know. I just had very strong opinions of who was cool and who was not cool. I had a lot of problems with girls all the time. And with social hierarchy and with in high school and with my place and how to fit in. 
They had a lot of feelings about younger girls and where who was allowed to sort of hang out and, at my event. So you were just like freshmen, sophomores, get out. You're yeah, losers. yeah, yeah, like, yeah, 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 absolutely. Oh, especially the ones that would like try to like who were super sexy and would try to like flirt with the boys in our grade. I would like destroy them. Absolutely. I'm not proud of it. It is just what it is. It's bad. It's very, very bad. Look, <laughs> I felt very excluded and very judged and very. Uh, left out in many ways. And so I went about leaving them out and excluding them. I, I, I don't know how to describe it other than it's like basic garbage high school drama over nothing, over stupid idiot boys, you know, all named David or Matthew. And like, <laughs> who can come to your bat mitzvah shit? It's like, it's so dumb. Who could come to your confirmation? It's right, like, right, right, right. so it's like not even interesting. Yeah, yeah. So like the thing is when my, uh, when my sister wrote this book, she was teaching at many different middle schools. She was teaching seminars. She was teaching students about how to be nicer to each other, right. how to she was teaching okay. Uh, she was teaching teachers about how to deal with these kids who were going nuts. People were discovering AIM, people were having AOL accounts, things were getting you know, a little shady online and people were having massive bulimia, anorexia problems, drug problems, drinking problems. I mean, it's classic garbage, yeah. uh, miserable American mm-hmm. lifestyle of kids who are not, who don't learn um, how, how to love themselves or how to be loved or exper- experience love. So they just cover it all up with their parents' fucking pills. And so when my sister was teaching all these schools and she was also helping me navigate all of these different problems I was having with these girls and with everybody and the world and my anger towards the world and how I was like, I would sneak out and I'd wear one outfit to leave the house and I'd have like a Betsy Johnson leopard baby doll dress, fishnets and grinders or like Doc Martens underneath. I'd like rip off my clothes and like go to these parties and no one knew where I was. Yeah. When I was growing up, she was watching and listening to me about all of these issues I was having and she was also simultaneously teaching at these other schools and listening to the other girls about their power dynamics and what was going on with them. But was she doing that because of you? Because she was like, I want to help my little sister. I don't know. I think she watched a lot of my struggles and my pain growing up. She really protected me and loved me and listened to me and always was there for me as much as she could be. She was amazing, is an amazing older sister, like the best you could ever imagine. But we would fight all the time. She didn't like the direction I was heading. She didn't like me having parties. She didn't like me having boys over. She didn't like me lying and stealing and right. what, and being bossy and bitchy and like you know we would fight all the time like a mother and daughter would um and it was challenging to for us to find a way to be copacetic because i was really going through i was really struggling to find my place and my voice and my power in a healthy way and she was really struggling to accept the nightmare garbage teenager I had become from this little cute girl. Right, right, I was right. like this dar- her darling little sister. And now I was this nightmare fishnet covered bitch. <laughs> it's like nightmare. Did you guys have a nickname for yourself? Like the plastics? Was there like a nickname for your crew? All of them had like Jeep Grand Cherokees. Mm-hmm. They, all, they all had the same bag. It was this fucking French black sack bag. <laughs> what the fuck was that stupid ass bag called? And these shoes, these shoes with the stripes on them. Oh my God. And they all had Labello. Because they'd all go to like a foreign places to ski. This was one of the big signs in high school was if you had this blue chapstick called Labello, it meant that you'd gone overseas to go skiing over winter holiday. Yeah. There was a lot of social cues that I couldn't participate in because I didn't have money anymore. Okay, so your your sister decides she's going to write this book. Yeah. And it's about queen bees and wannabes. Right. And you 
are in this book, hearing about this book? Like, how does this make you feel? How old are you at this point? I think she wrote it between the ages of when I was 14 to 16. It came out when I was 17, if I'm correct, because I think I went to the premiere when I was 18 of the movie. And Mm -hmm. to be very clear, her book was not written to be a movie. Her book was written as a guide for parents. Sociology. And it would give give Mm -hmm. concrete examples of like horrible things that I had done (laughs) or ways in which I tricked (laughs) tricked or lied to my mother. And I would give her different (laughs) tips about like, hey, parents, if you come back from out of town and the garbage is relined, if there's like fresh garbage, they had a party. Hey, look at like, take up, take up. I gave her all these tips about how to tell if your parent, if your kid was partying, how to tell if they were lying, how to tell, all these, all these different things. And then she also interviewed my friends and she interviewed other girls. And so the movie is basically a compilation of many girls, but a lot of me. And and I I didn't, I didn't know what the fuck she was doing, man. Like I didn't, I had no clue that she was going to, it was going to have this massive repercussions on all of our lives. And especially when they bought the book, we had no clue it would be good. No one thought it would be good. I mean, Tina Fey gave her like right. a modicum of money and we were like, okay, let's just hope it's not the worst movie of all time. Let's hope that this isn't like the most embarrassing thing we've ever seen. And when it was a giant hit, like it took everyone by surprise. I had no fucking clue. And I got in so Did- much trouble because of this fucking movie. Why? 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 Now, remember how we said the New York Times Magazine wrote a story about the book, profiling Zoe and other girls for it? Well, Zoe says she got drunk and she was a minor during the interview. And I say terrible things in New York Times Magazine about (laughs) the freshman girls in my class. And I say really rude things about other students. And I had to, like, apologize to my entire school for, like, saying these terrible things about these idiot freshman girls that I meant at the time. (laughs) And so I got in all this trouble. So wait, wait. So did you ever go on set or did you ever have like any, okay. So you just went to the premiere. I went to the premiere. My sister couldn't go. And my sister has these emails from Tina being like, are you sure your sister can be there alone? Like I'd met her before and I apparently was a lot. (laughs) And, And I think that there's like some email somewhere of Tina being like, make sure that your sister like keeps it together, okay? Fair enough. Rosalind couldn't go because she was sick and Zoe was a handful. Like, don't let her like drink too much. Don't let her like be too much. And my sister's like, I don't know. Good luck, Tina. Like, anyway, so I went to the premiere. Okay, paint a picture of that. Paint a picture of that. That's in New York, I guess. It was the most fun fucking ever. I had the best time. I made out with Jonathan Starrett, the lead of the movie, who is now gay. who looked just like my ex-boyfriend at the time, who had just dumped me. They looked exactly the same. So I got to call my ex-boyfriend and tell him I made out with the famous movie version of him. So hot. So good. Um, and you know, what, and did you introduce yourself? Were you like, hey, I'm Regina George? I'm not really. I'm, I'm more, I gotta say, I gotta always felt like I was more Katie. I did. But I I mean, look, there was moments of me that are very Regina. I'll tell you, I ran shit for sure. And with an iron fist, fine. (laughs) But it wasn't like towards losers and nerds. It was trying to take down the other popular kids. So that's where it sort of gets like mixed up. But anyway, then we went to Glass Nightclub, the cast and me, and I ended up smoking (laughs) pot with Lindsay in the bathroom. How did that happen? I don't know. I know she was like, she had all these bouncers and... Uh, she was smoking Lucky Strike cigarettes. I didn't smoke it because I was like a on the tennis team, obviously. I was a killer tennis player. Anyway, so I didn't smoke. But she asked me to get her like coach bag, no joke, like small, to get her Lucky Strikes. 
And I reached to get her purse and two security bouncers picked me up and like removed me from the table that we had with all this booze. Oh, we had tons of alcohol, obviously. We're like at a New York nightclub. And it was the first time I realized that like she was more important than I was. I didn't get it that she was Ooh. that she was like a she was yeah. like a movie star and I was just like this other person that was touching her bag. It was like very right. It was right, a very, it was alerting. It was a, I was like, wait a minute, I thought we were equals. I'm at the table. I'm you know, but no, no, she was a movie star right away. Anybody who has a sibling knows that sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope, on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince Harry and Prince William. They'd been each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wandry's podcast, Disentel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle? Or was it something that began much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So both Zoe and Rosalind insist she's not the Regina George, that that's an amalgam of characters from the book, the New York Times article, the movie creator's imagination. But there certainly seem to be a lot of similarities. My school did have a like a very insane burn book where this, our most popular girl, Ooh. Like the hottest girl in school, she wrote this crazy newspaper that was so evil, like with these two other like weird guys, but whatever. Our school had these terrible newspapers that would make fun of people, like horrible. Anyway, the most popular girl in my school got kicked out and banished and she had to like, like one month before graduation. Um, there were some parallels where people were like, wait a minute, like is this GDS? Is this George Sunday School this, that this movie is based on? But it really is all the different nightmare girls that my sister was right. working with. And we're all coming up against the same deep problems with privilege and class and wealth and insecurity, anorexia, drug issues, having sex too young, you know, like to take drugs too young. Mm-hmm. All, I mean, it was just a mess. These, these private schools are just a hotbed for just insecure disaster people. And then at the end of the movie, Regina George gets hit by a bus. Do you know what everyone says about you? They say that you're a homeschooled jungle freak who's a less hot version of me. Yeah, so don't try to act so innocent. You can take that fake apology and shove it right up your hairy... And that's how Regina George died. No, I'm totally kidding. But she did get hurt. 
But you also got hit by I, a bus. When did you get I hit, got by, a hit bus? by a truck? A mar- <laughs> but that was uh, four years later. I I guess karma got me. I don't know. I did get flattened by a Marriott passenger vehicle, airport passenger vehicle, and I broke everything and had to have complete facial reconstructive surgery. So maybe maybe that's what I get for being wow. a, being a charismatic human in high school. Is what I'm going to call it now. <laughs> so that's just a coincidence. That's just a coincidence that Regina George gets hit by a bus and you got hit by a Marriott. <laughs> it's a truck. Passenger it was a truck. It was a truck. It was <laughs> a truck disguised as a Marriott passenger van. Yes. Total coincidence. Okay. You were rollerblading. Where were you? What happened exactly? I was in D.C. I was working at the, at, uh, for Thievery Corporation at their bar. Um, that was the sickest nightclub in D.C. as a bottle service girl, sort of, at and nice. I, <laughs> but it was more like a cocktail waitress. It was both. But I sometimes, yeah, anyway. Right. And I would try to get yeah. from my Sheep. apartment in DuPont <laughs> Circle. I'd try to go in my rollerblades because I used to be a very, very good rollerblader. I used to try to get from my apartment at the top of Connecticut Avenue. And if people know DC well, by the Watergate, we're weighing up. There's this giant hill. Mm. So I used to go down this hill very fast in and out of the cars and try to get from my apartment to my job in 10 minutes. It was like a little over a mile. And so I'd, I'd go right. in and out of traffic and I... I went around this car. Apparently, I don't remember anything. I went around the truck into the crosswalk to try to beat the light. And he didn't see me. And he made an illegal right. And he slowly ran into me as I was going very, very fast. And my head hit the ground first. Apparently, according to court records, head hit the ground first, rollerblades hit last. And the really fun thing about this story is that uh, it, my mother always told me to wear underpants and I never, ever wore underpants as like a defiance thing. And she had a joke, like, what if you end up in the hospital? And let me tell you something, it, the car caught on my romper and ripped it off. So I was basically like Carrie covered in blood, oh, head busted oh, open, naked, naked on the streets in the middle of downtown DC in rush hour, like 5 PM in like 16th street in Connecticut, which is the busiest part of DC. Like, you know, we're all, it's by the White House, it's by all the whatever. And so like 40,000 people saw me get hit by this car. At least. I like ruined everyone's day. <laughs> I got got big time. And you broke everything. And you had a neurological damage? Yes. I mean, I broke all my ribs. I broke, I fractured my pelvis. I, I obliterated Holy my shit. occipital bone, which is my eye socket. They had to put titanium in my face and go in through my chin. It was actually the first time in my life where I think I really began to change because I had never felt truly, and this is going to sound crazy, and I know (laughs) I had never felt unattractive before. I had always felt pretty powerful. I always felt smart. I always felt loved. Mm -hmm. I always, I I mean, I had found a pocket to like really feel, even with all the trials and tribulations, like I felt good about myself. And it was the first time where I Mm -hmm. recognized that all of that good feeling was based on my belief that I was a sexually viable member of society. When I did not feel attractive, mm-hmm. I literally fell apart and I realized that my entire personality was based was like a was like a jacket covered in weasels and you'd open up my jacket and I'm just a bunch of weasels and I'm just weasels eating soup or something. Like there's nothing inside yeah. of me besides this fluffy ephemeral belief and that I needed to fucking start over from the beginning and figure out what I believed in and what mattered and what was what my life was going to be like if I stayed like this because I didn't know what my face was going to look like after surgery and I didn't know if I was going to walk well and I didn't know if I was going to be able to dance my way through life anymore and so I it was fucking humbling man I really you know and going yeah. to the bathroom with help 
at 20 fucking five is super humbling. And, and having your mother take care right. of you and not be able to get water in the middle because you can't fucking walk is so humble. I mean, it's really, yeah. it put my ass back into perspective and it, it gave me so much empathy for sickness, so much empathy for hardship, so much empathy for just the human condition through pain. I just had never understood. And then I understood about like morphine addiction and all those pills. Like there, I was on so many pills and I went through like crazy mm-hmm. withdrawal. My mom took me off of this shit, went through crazy opiate withdrawal. That was crazy. And it just humbled me to my knees and it took me months to recover. Yeah. Months and months and months to recover. And then I think I became a much nicer person who wielded my power for good. A couple years later, I started my podcast. I, start, I moved to New York and I just never stopped running because I had stopped walking for so long, you know? That's it for Zoe. But we're just going to let Rosalind Weissman have the last word here because we all know how much high school has affected our lives and how nice it would be to fix it. I think that the stuff that we learn as middle as girls, like to maintain the relationship, no matter how you're treated in the relationship, and then you take that with you for the rest of your life into your primary relationships, the relationships with your partners and your work relationships, it just impacts so much of like, think about how so many women don't want to say what they feel, what they want, what they believe they deserve because they, or when they're angry about something, when someone's violated a boundary of theirs because they don't want to be mean or they don't want to be perceived as being mean. And so they don't advocate for themselves in the way that they should, in the way they deserve. Yeah. So what would be the answer though? Then just leave the click, just go off on your own, be alone. No, not at all. No, not at all. Because being a human being is about being in relationship with other people. And I think a lot of women ask me a lot about like, what is the point of telling anybody what I think when I'm trying to advocate for myself or when I'm upset, when I'm angry and you don't have to do it all the time. There are times when it doesn't, you know, you you don't have to tell everybody all the time what you feel. I think sometimes we've gone completely overboard on that with like, this is my truth. So you have to listen to my truth. And then the people that are so focused on their truth, don't want to listen to anybody else's truth. And that's just narcissism. That's just spoiled Mm -hmm. narcissism. When we do that dressed up as like self-empowerment and improvement. But being able to say, I'm going to actually do the work to prepare to be able to speak to this person in a way that I'm going to treat myself with dignity. I'm going to treat this other person with dignity. I'm going to say what is bothering me, but but not do a whole laundry list of things that are wrong. I'm not going to gaslight them. I'm not going to be passive aggressive. I'm going to say what I want. And I'm also, I define listening as being prepared to be changed by what you hear. I'm going to actually create a space where maybe I can listen. Doesn't mean Mm -hmm. I have to agree. It just means I have to listen. And these are like essential fundamental skills that we are not raised with. And so Mm -hmm. if we can do that, then no matter what the outcome is on the other side, it doesn't matter about people not changing or not getting the the outcome that you want. It's that you're showing up and present the way that you want to and the way you can be proud of. And and, And when that happens, you start having relationships that reflect that you start advocating for yourself in a way that people can take you seriously in all different kinds of relationships work to the people that, you know, maybe you're sharing a bed with. So it's, it's really profound. Like these cha- this legacy, these legacy issues, these things that we bring with us are so profound, but we can handle it. Thank you to Zoe Nightingale and Rosalind Weissman. You can listen to Zoe's podcast, You're Welcome, wherever you get your podcasts. And find Rosalind's new co-authored book on conversations on race 
online or at your local retailer. It's called Courageous Discomfort. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be back with an episode we've already published, but many of you probably haven't heard it yet. And if you haven't, it's pretty delightful. It's the story of the making of the movie of Fifty Shades of Grey. We've been talking about it since Random House started publishing the books. They've sold well over a hundred million copies. My tastes are very singular. You wouldn't understand. Can you tell all your fans why you decided to not do the film? You know, I, I, I was doing my TV show and we ended up doing an extra episode which pushed us back. And then I was already attached to Crimson Peak with Guillermo directing. And you know, Guillermo's my pal. She answered, I didn't want the tweets to stop. They were very entertaining and I was amused by them. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.